You're listening to Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. Deal by Deal invites you to conversations with experienced independent sponsors and other private equity professionals. Join McGuire Woods partners Greg Hover and Jeff Rooker as they explore middle market private equity M&A to provide you with timely insights and relevant takeaways. Hi, and welcome to Deal by Deal, a podcast for independent sponsors and others in the private equity community. Today, we are going to be talking about raising a committed fund. I'm Greg Hover, your host. I'm a lawyer here at McGuire Woods in the Chicago office. And for today's topic, I'm excited to be joined by my partner in our Charlotte office, Rick Starling. Before I get too far into the topic of what we're going to be talking about today, Rick, do you want to give a quick intro to yourself and your practice? Sure. Thanks, Greg. It's good to be talking to you today. And hello to all the listeners out there. Again, as Greg said, my name is Rick Starling. I'm in the fund formation practice here at McGuire Woods. I've been practicing fund formation law for 20 or 25 years now. Most of my career at a different firm, but I joined McGuire Woods roughly six months ago to help lead the funds group here. I think the hallmark of our practice is really our focus on emerging managers and also independent sponsors, helping people really get their fund businesses up and running from the start and helping them with all phases of that and all, and all aspects of it. So I'm excited to be here talking to Greg today about you know, considerations and alternatives to raising a committed fund and, and what's going on in today's market and what we're seeing. Great. Appreciate that, Rick. And, and so just to set the stage here a little bit and, and to provide a little context. So Rick and I were just down in Dallas with a bunch of other McGuire Woods lawyers and 1,500 other uh, attendees at the McGuire Woods Independent Sponsor Conference. And so, you know, the attendees there were either capital partners or independent sponsors. It was a fantastic conference. And one of the topics that we discussed, which is kind of a, a crossover topic, is raising a fund. And if you are an independent sponsor thinking of raising a fund, what are some of the pitfalls there? What are the, some of the considerations? In addition to sort of that initiative we have at McGuire Woods, we also have our Emerging Managers Initiative, which is actually another conference that we have in Dallas in the spring. And so Rick is one of the leaders of that initiative and that practice and works with people raising the their first fund or their second fund. And so the idea here is to, if you are an independent sponsor, if you're with a, if you're currently with a fund and have, you know, moved up the ranks quite a bit and are thinking about what would life be like raising my own fund, we're going to try to talk about all things to consider on that front. So with that, Rick, you want to give an overview of what is the current fundraising market like for those out there seeking to raise a, a fund right now? Well, sure, I will do that. And before we do that, I'll just want to chime in on these conferences. The work that McGuire Woods does in the independent sponsor and emerging manager space is, is really exciting. And, and it's a real value add for clients and, and even non-clients in this space. And it's honestly maybe the biggest driver of my decision to, to leave where I was and come to McGuire Woods. So it's really exciting stuff. So if there are any capital providers out there listening that have an interest in investing with independent sponsors and emerging managers, please look these things up and, and consider attending. And if you're an investment manager, whether you are working as an independent sponsor or as an emerging manager or somewhere in between, find out about these things and, and please do. We, we encourage you to come and attend. The events are, are really more about putting 
um, capital providers together with people that are looking to raise capital than they are about anything else. So it's it's a lot of that, and then very little actually interaction with McGuire Woods lawyers, <laughs> uh, frankly. But they tend to be really great, great and exciting events, and I've been excited to be able to attend those. Back to your question, Greg. I mean, as we all probably would imagine, you know, fundraising is a little bit a little bit tough right now. 2023 has been a, a rough year. You know, 2021 was gangbusters. It was kind of gangbusters on into 2020, beginning of 2022. But the back half of 2022 and the earlier part of 2023, it has been a lot, a little bit harder. LPs, allocations, in particular with respect to new relationships with new managers, are a little lower than they were in the last couple of years. I think at this point in 2023, a lot of LPs allocations are frankly used up. So they're already kind of starting to think about 2024, which means if you're trying to raise money in 2023, it's going to be that much harder. Yeah, you know, I, I ran a panel on this topic at our independent sponsor conference, and that was kind of the gist of what the, the panelists who are on the LP side were relaying to us. Although they did say that it, they thought it would probably look up uh, hopefully as soon as sometime in, in 2024. Got it. So not the ideal time to to raise a fund, but if you do decide to go down this road, what are some things that you should be thinking about, you know, right right now? So if you make the decision in in fall of 2023 that you're going to raise a fund, what's kind of the the timeline like and what are some key considerations to think about? Well, there's a few different questions in there. The timeline for raising the fund can really vary. And if you're thinking about in, engaging counsel and other service providers and what their time slot, timelines might be, they're usually not going to be the gating factors. I mean, the gating factors usually is how long is it going to take you to uh, work your network, to, to meet new investors and get these investors comfortable with who you are and what you're doing and to, to sign on the bottom line. And, and the reason I point that out is because we have clients and by the way, even though the 2023 market is a little tough, we have clients that are out there raising funds successfully and get reaching their cap or reaching their targets and even their caps. So it, it's not like it can't be done. Somebody comes to us with a that already has you know good relationships with investors who are aware they're raising a fund and interested in raising a fund with them can raise the fund in 60 or 90 days. And that's kind of the bare minimum time when getting it done. More realistically, you're probably looking at a you know six to 10 month process from starting to do work on it to holding an initial closing. You generally want that initial closing to be maybe half of your target, give or take, and we can get back to that. And then there'll typically be a fundraising period that follows your initial closing, where once you have an initial closing on your fund, you've got 12 to 18 months to to get your final closing, where you then have to wrap a bow on the fund and get down to the work of, of investing. Not that you're not investing during that period as well. Got it. Got it. So maybe talk to me a little bit about track record and, you know, the importance of track record. You know, when do you want to make the... This assumes we're talking about an independent sponsor. You know, how many deals do you see people close or how many deals do you see people exit before they're turning to to raising a fund? Great question. Yeah, you know, track record is certainly important. Now, that track record can be from a prior firm. You know, we see a lot of emerging manager clients who are people that have worked at larger private equity firms for some period of years and kind of have their own track record or a track record that they can point to is more or less attributable to them. And some folks like that can actually go out and raise a fund 
maybe without doing any deals on their own. But, you know, usually it helps to, to be able to do one or two or maybe even three to which is really, you know, less about maybe your your track record per se, because you've got a track record if you were at a prior another firm. But it's more maybe about just showing that you can, in fact, source and execute deals on your own, which I guess the sourcing and execution of deals is part of your track record, just like just like your performance is. So it can be as few as, as a couple. You know, if you maybe maybe that's not where you're coming from. Maybe you are more of an operator and you don't have the experience of having worked in a private equity firm before a slightly longer track track record might be might be relevant and critical. You might need to show that you've got, you know, you actually might even need to exit some investments and show that you can actually generate returns. So so it varies by firm, but it certainly is an important thing that the people need to have. Got it. So I've got a question. I hear a lot about attribution and, you know, if I'm with committed fund, you know, what are the dynamics between whether I can, you know, get attribution for deals I've closed? Can you tell me a little bit about that? How do those discussions work? Well, there's a few different angles to that. But at the end of the day, from a legal standpoint, and maybe even also a commercial standpoint, I think it boils down to two things. One, of course, is whether you have the right to use that information. People who are leaving private equity firms oftentimes are subject to restrictions on their ability to use their track record, have to run things by their former employer. Um, you know, some people don't have any restrictions and some people have a lot. So, but anybody who's leaving a firm and hoping to use a track record from that firm needs to make sure they're, they're doing it right by the, by the prior firm. Equally and perhaps more importantly, but a little harder to, a little more complicated to think through is you know, how you can use whatever track record you have. Because certainly somebody who's coming out of Say somebody you know worked as an analyst for a few years at a firm, and then graduated from being an analyst to being a, a higher up and being a, a partner or an MD. You know, their their track record or their their involvement in the deals they worked on will have evolved over time, and their role in each deal is a little bit different. So you do have interesting questions about you know well, and also those people presumably worked on teams, you worked on a team of people, or maybe you had peers, maybe a people above you, maybe a people below you. So we certainly talk to people about, you know, whether and to what extent they can use that track record. But then, but in most cases, I think you can. And then it, it turns into a question of just being accurate and disclosing, you know, whether and to what extent those deals are attributable to, attributable to you. At the end of the day, the SEC would say that, you know, you can't use a track record that is not yours and is not, or that is materially misleading to investors. And they would say that a track record from, different types of deals or that where you were in, or where your involvement in the deals was was arguably not that significant or where the team of people you were working on is so working with is so different from the team of people you're working with now that that tracker track record is is almost not usable and we have had situations where you have to tell people from a performance standpoint you know you can't give those performance metrics on those deals i'll also say that when we talk about track records, there's kind of different elements to it, right? One is the types of deals you've done and what your roles in those deals were. The other is how those deals did. And the former is a lot looser than the than the latter. In other words, you, it's pretty much always going to be fair game to talk about what you've done, what kind of deals you're involved in, what your role was, as long as you're honest about that. But the where, where it gets a little trickier is where you want to talk about the returns on those investments. And that's where we get into things about 
or we sometimes get into advising clients that look that that team, that track record, your role there, the t- you know uh, the types of deals you were doing, whether it was size or industry focus, is just too different from what you're doing now, or it's so different from what you're doing now that you frankly can't use that track record in in marketing materials. Maybe orally, you can do a little more orally in one-off meetings. And in response to specific requests from specific investors than you can in written marketing materials. But there's a lot of considerations to be thought through when you're thinking about using your track record in terms of you know, MOIs, IRRs, and written materials that you're providing investors. Got it. That's really helpful. And that's a good transition to sort of the next phase of raising a fund. You know, we talked about building the track record, being a great investor. And at some point you need to give smart fund formation like lawyer like Rick Starling of phone callers or someone a phone call to start thinking about, I assume, you know, what type of fund are you going to raise? Sort of a typical fund or some variation on that. What are going to be the terms that you're going to go out to the market with to LPs? And then I want to touch later on anchor investors. But when does that occur? When do those discussions happen with with a fund formation lawyer? And then what are some initial very high level considerations about kind of the types of funds and not to throw seven questions into one, but, you know, what are some differences between fund economics and then independent sponsor deal by deal economics? Well, we may have to come back, Greg, and address some of this <laughs> one at a time. Let's put it this way. If I forget one, yeah. you me back. I'll let you off the hook. Yeah. A few different ideas there. One is it's never too early to engage helpful counsel. People shouldn't be worried that talking to a fund formation lawyer is all of a sudden going to lock them into you know tens of thousands of dollars of legal expense. There's a lot that we can do with clients on the front end where it's just minimal consultations to get them pointed in the right direction, whether that's in terms of thinking about fund structures, thinking about timing, thinking about preliminary marketing materials like a pitch book or something like that, and what a a big picture summary of terms would would look like. So people should never hesitate to reach out to to, the fund counselor early in the process. Here at McGuire Woods, we do a lot of uh, early planning and advising like that for people without even charging for it up front. You know, the idea being that if you, if you retain us to help you with your fund formation, we'll probably not charge you until your fund closes. So never too early to start those conversations. Um, you know, another question you didn't exactly answer, but I want to touch on the answer to is, well, you sort of asked it, is, you know, what, what would a fund structure look like? And are there alternative, maybe alternatives to a traditional fund? You know, Something we got some consistent feedback from LPs on my panel at the uh, at the independent sponsor conference was the idea of this, this concept that the traditional kind of 10 year, 10 to 15 investment fund hasn't gone by the wayside. But for emerging managers, it may be always the best idea. What I mean by that is a lot of historically people launching funds have kind of backed into a an investment period a term and a fund size based on what they're based on their typical investment size and frequency and this idea that a normal fund would probably have 10 or 15 investments in it for diversification purposes. And what I mean by that is if you think, okay, well, I typically make 20 to $30 million investments. I make one or two investments a year. A fund should hold 10 invest or maybe two investments a year the fund should hold 10 investments, you can do some easy back of the envelope math and, and back into a, 
that 200 or 200, $203 million, 200 or $300 million fund with a four or five year investment period in a 10 year life. And that's, you know, that's more or less how people have designed funds over the years. Now, for an emerging manager who does 20 to $30 million deals, it might be tough to go raise 200 to $300 million and have people entrust that much money to you and entrust the idea of making 10 or 15 investments with their money to you. And one thing we are seeing a fair bit of these days is what we sometimes call a proof of concept fund, where instead of raising enough money to do 10 to 12 or 15 deals, you raise enough money to do three or four deals, go do those deals, show that you can execute and then come back and do it again. Or maybe by the time you do it again, the economy's in a little better position, or maybe it just makes sense. You just have more investor appetite for what you're doing. And at that point in time, be able to raise your traditional 10 year, 10 or 15 investment funds. So back to this example of somebody who does say 20 to $30 million investments, instead of raising two or $300 million, raise $80 million or $100 million, raise enough money to, to get you through a couple of years and to get you through a couple, a handful of investments. It kind of gives investors an opportunity to test the waters with you without making too big a commitment and maybe tied you over through into a, to a better economic time. Great. The proof of concept fund is, is super interesting and, and probably very applicable to our audience. Maybe spend one more minute on just what the traditional fund structure looks like from investing horizon or investing period perspective. And then just quickly, like, you know, how that differs from deal by deal economics. Yeah. So I think, Greg, your question probably is I, what I hear is maybe think talking about how the economics of a commingled fund or a traditional fund would differ from the economics of operating as an independent sponsor, which there may be a lot of people, most people who are listening to this may may know this, but this may be obvious, but I think it is worth worth repeating and bearing out. Somebody operating as an independent sponsor is presumably putting together the money for each deal they do on a one-off basis and getting a carried interest on each investment on a one-off basis. We also see a lot of independent sponsors able to get tiered carry, where maybe it's you know, and a lot of times what I would call super carry, you know, carry over 20%. Now, in the independent sponsor world, we see a lot where you don't get the 20% until you maybe reach certain hurdles or thresholds. So maybe it starts at 10 or 15, goes to 20, it goes to 25 or 30. If you if you hit certain multiples or other other operating, other performance metrics. But in the fund world, you know, two and 20 kind of still is the standard. You know, we, so... What that means, there are two two important aspects of that. One is you're probably not going to get super carry as an emerging manager. It's not unheard of, but it's going to be tough. And then secondly, and more, more fundamentally, whereas when you're operating as an independent sponsor, each deal stands on its own two feet. If you have some deals underperform and some deals overperform, you get benefit of the outperformance on your deals that do. And your carry isn't necessarily hit. Your carry on those deals certainly is not hit by how the other deals perform. But in a fund, you, of course, have a commingled group of investments where the carry is going to be calculated across the whole pool of investments. And also, you get into questions about how that gets paid out, you know, where you get in. And that's when you start talking about American waterfalls versus European waterfalls and when you can actually get that carry. To make a long story short, in a commingled fund, if your first deal does really well, you may or may not actually be able to take carry on it, depending on your distribution waterfall. The other thing that people in the independent sponsor space need to be aware of is the difference in how fees are, cal- are, are what kinds of management and other fees they can earn 
commingled fund. In the independent sponsor space, sponsors are used to charging management fees, diligence fees, and other portfolio company level fees and getting to keep that compensation to keep their businesses running. In the fund space, you, know, you will get to charge in almost every t- instance a management fee based on the capital commitments of your fund from day one, which obviously is a real benefit. The flip side of that is investors in commingled funds expect their fund managers not to charge and keep fees on the portfolio companies that they're that they're managing. So to the extent fund managers collecting monitoring fees or due diligence fees, there's almost always a dollar for dollar offset to management fees. So that's just another thing that independent sponsors need to to bear in mind as from an economic perspective as they're thinking about this shift from being an independent sponsor to, to running a commingled fund. Great, great. That's that's really interesting. This has been a really good overview, Rick. I guess a parting question any other considerations that you see as far as how the world shifts once you move from whatever you're doing, whether it's deal by deal investing or, or working at a fund to, to raising your own fund, whether that's kind of administrative items and building out a larger back office, whether that's additional registrations with the SEC, et cetera? It's an interesting question because I thought about that and asked people about that and gotten different answers. A lot of independent sponsors already have well-built out teams, you know, uh, back o- internal back offices and well-developed you know, network of service providers. But there are also independent sponsors who are more one or two man shops that are making investments and just using accountants and may or may not have a fund administrator or any other service providers helping them. Certainly when run someone like in that latter camp is transitioning to being a fund manager, it's a good idea to start thinking sooner rather than later about building out your back office and maybe even also building out your investment team. If you're going to raise, if you're going to raise and manage a 200 or 300 or $500 million fund or even a $100 million fund and have, especially if you're going to have any institutional investors, you probably need to have to be able to show them up front that you've already thought through the administrative aspects of running your fund. Now that doesn't necessarily mean you need to staff up internally because there are, there are a lot of really good service providers that you can outsource a lot of this to. So we do have emerging manager clients that almost still operate as one-man or two-man shops without any other employees. But those that do that, you, know, you need to have a funded, qualified fund administrator. You probably want to have a compliance firm helping you with investment advisor registration and compliance. You want to make sure you have the right auditors and, and accountants helping you and all that. So, so that aspect of running a fund is, is, is important and institutional investors look at that and want to see that. And then you alluded to investment advisor registration. Look, you know, whether an independent sponsor needs to consider registering as an investment advisor is an interesting and, and, and complicated question that independent sponsors will be well served to talk to their counsel about. Whether a fund manager has to register as an investment advisor is a much simpler question. <laughs> if the fund, if someone is managing funds and has over $25 million in assets under management, they need to, at a minimum, begin filing with the SEC as an exempt reporting advisor. And when they hit $150 million in assets under management, we'll have to register as an investment advisor with the SEC. Now, that is a one-sentence, very high-level overview of investment advisor considerations that leaves out a whole lot of details. <laughs> there, there are situations where people 
in that 25 to $150 million range would still need to register. There are situations where people above 150 would not have to register. So you take all this with a grain of salt, but certainly I guess the way I would sum that up is by saying that investment advisor registration is, is an issue for all investment managers, but is particularly acute for people that are, that are raising a fund in the sense that look, generally speaking, unless they're a venture capital fund manager, at $150 million in assets under management, they will have to register with the SEC. <laughs> Not the end of the world. I mean, since Dodd-Frank, thousands of fund managers have registered. There are thousands of people out there operating as registered investment advisors that manage funds. It's not the end of the world, but it does it does add a layer of administrative and regulatory complexity to your business. Great. Well, well, don't worry, Rick. We do have a disclaimer at the end of this podcast that makes clear this is not legal advice, but I will just highlight that again and definitely worthy of conversations with a lawyer, not on a podcast about those topics. Well, this was super informative and interesting, Rick. Thank you for your time. This was not, you know, not meant to be a sales pitch for for raising a committed fund. Most of our listeners are really bought into the deal by deal model and we'll continue to, you know, follow that model. It's it's growing as evidenced by our conference we just wrapped up in Dallas. For those interested, we did bring in, you know, Rick. We brought on other partners into our fund formation group and have been expanding this emerging managers initiative significantly, you know, such that I, I think that, you know, Rick and his team are are really in a great position to advise people on these preliminary type of matters that are that are exciting for people as they're out there thinking about raising the fund. So Rick, again, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. To learn more about today's discussion and our commitment to the independent sponsor community, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.